Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Here's some really cool news. You may remember Dr. Maya Shankar was a guest on my show this past spring. Well, I'm thrilled to share the news that Maya's podcast, her podcast, was just named Apple Podcasts' Best Show of the Year. A slight change of plans. It's all about understanding the science of change, which you know I'm deeply invested in. And that understanding mixed with a healthy dose of compassion has made the show a perfect antidote for the times we're living in. Maya has interviewed celebrities like Tiffany Haddish and Casey Musgraves, but she's also interviewed real-life inspirations as well, people who have dealt with cancer diagnoses or the loss of a loved one and somehow managed to learn and grow from those hard experiences. I challenge you to listen to an episode and not walk away feeling inspired. You can find a slight change of plans wherever you find your podcasts. Please go do that. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 222. So not all, all surprises produce belief changes, but all belief changes probably were triggered by surprise. Not all surprises trigger belief change, but almost all belief change is triggered by surprise. I love that idea. And it's the thesis of a new book by Michael Russell titled The Power of Surprise. Here's Michael. Well, uh, currently I'm uh, a a professor emeritus at, from Southern Oregon University. Um, most of the time, I've been uh, a professor uh, at uh, Southern Oregon. Prior to that, I was a school teacher, a psychologist, a counselor. I worked in, um, uh, it was a, uh, probably one of the things I enjoyed most, just I coached volleyball and hockey and lots of sports uh, throughout my life. I enjoyed athletics and I really enjoyed working with young people and helping them become more exciting and interesting and better and more equipped with, with things in their life. Yeah, that part is really crucial to the soul of the book. But in the book, Michael also explains the science of surprise at the level of neurons and brain structures, the interplay of chemicals in the nervous system like dopamine and serotonin, and the evolutionary history of how all those things came together to create this flowchart of sorts that illustrates how we go from experiences to pattern recognition to expectations, and then what happens when we are surprised, when novelty and ambiguity subverts those expectations, leading to a neurochemical, psychological kaleidoscope of emotions and cognitions that not only create the subjective experience of surprise, but what follows from surprise, which is, well, it's learning. And from that learning, we develop beliefs not only about the outside world, but the inside world as well, who we are, who we are not, what we are and are not capable of doing and being, and so on. I was surprised by how much of this book focuses on that latter part, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And as Michael points out in this book, the very same experience that leads to the very same neurochemical reactions we call surprise in every brain can lead to very different explanations in individual brains of why 
we were surprised. And that can lead to very different personal narratives, which become beliefs about ourselves that then guide our behaviors and motivations and goals, and perhaps most importantly, our willingness to be surprised and change and grow in the future. We will get to that in a second, but first, I wanted to ask Michael more about what is happening in the brain when we feel that feeling we usually label as surprise. And he suggested anyone interested in this part of our discussion should check out the work of Mark Humphreys, a neuroscientist at the University of Nottingham who has written extensively about dopamine. Because when it comes to surprise and learning and beliefs and so on, there's a common misconception that dopamine is the reward chemical. But in fact, it's just a lot more nuanced than that. I like his description of uh, dopamine does a lot of things as neurotransmitters, but we tend to think of them as as the motivator neurotransmitter. And that's the aspect that I want to talk about today. When you think of dopamine, there's basically, there's two kinds of dopamine that Humphreys talks about. It's called tonic dopamine. And that's the dopamine that we have in our body. That's always present. It just, it moves very slowly. So uh, tonic dopamine is slow acting dopamine. Now, let me give you an example of uh, how dopamine works. So you're walking down the sidewalk. This is tonic dopamine. You're walking down the sidewalk and you're approaching and you're starting to get hungry. It's, uh, it's lunchtime. So you think, okay, I need to, I need a bite to eat. Your dopamine is driving you, motivating you to get a bite to eat because you've felt this hunger pain. So you look in the window of this diner and uh, you're hungry and you look in the window of the diner and it looks unkept, a little messy. And the, the patrons in there aren't the type of patrons that you would normally associate with maybe. And so your dopamine level, your tonic dopamine level just drops a little bit. So you walk across the street and you go to another diner and you look in that diner and the, it looks crisp and clean and the people are bustling around. There's more people in it. So your, dope, your tonic dopamine just goes up a little bit and it motivates you. So now that your tonic dopamine is moving, you know, slow and fast changes or slow changes in dopamine are motivation signals. So now you look in there, you, you put a smile on your face, you walk in, you order a dinner, you expect it to be good. So uh, that that's how tonic dopamine works. It's based on your priors, your beliefs, like, oh, clean diners, lots of people in there. All those things help you decide. And uh, so that's tonic dopamine. Now, Wolfgang Schultz out of the University of Cambridge and his team, they figured out something called phasic dopamine. And uh, they got the 2017 pri- uh, brain prize for this. And, and so phasic dopamine is what they call fast-acting dopamine. Now, fast-acting dopamine is essentially an error signal. What you believe is wrong. So from an evolutionary point of view, uh, surprise, uh, surprise usually meant imminent danger or immense opportunity. And if you stop to think about it, <laughs> you probably perished or m- missed your opportunity. So uh, you didn't get in the gene pool. <laughs> so, so, uh, so pondering when you're surprised, thinking, uh, often costs you your life or an opportunity. Okay, let's back up just a moment to pre-clarify everything we're going to talk about next. And what I'm about to say comes from the work of Michael and Humphreys and Schultz and others. And it all involves dopamine. See, thanks to the weirdness of our evolutionary history, the system that we lean upon for updating our beliefs is deeply enmeshed in the system that usually maintains our motivation to remain on task. That is, the chemistry in our brains that keeps us at work keeps us studying, watching a movie, standing in line, holding up our end of a conversation. You can feel when that chemistry is shifting, when you feel unmotivated to continue and ready to move on to something else. Or in the case of something like, say, TikTok or a video game or gambling, you can feel when the motivation is there to stay on task at the expense of other motivations. It's keeping you focused and engaged. So with that in mind, In complex organisms, 
Survival depends on, as accurately as possible, predicting what will happen next based on what happened before. And it may seem odd, but our ability to notice errors in those predictions depends on dopamine, this neurotransmitter crucial for regulating motivation. As Humphreys puts it, the brain rests in a soup of dopamine, and from one moment to the next, the concentration of that soup influences how motivated you feel to remain on task, or thanks to a lack of motivation, a decrease in the concentration of the soup, your chances of abandoning that task for another. Those feelings arise when outcomes don't match our expectations. For instance, let's say you took a flight to Iceland, and at the baggage claim, you were surprised to learn that the airport offers free ice cream for arriving passengers. You get a spike in dopamine that would bring your attention to that unexpected positive outcome, and that would motivate you to add a new behavior to your routines, and the output of all of this would be you'd become more likely to choose that airport instead of others in the future. But if you had chosen that airport before and chose it again specifically for their complimentary ice cream baggage claim, when you got your ice cream, your dopamine would remain stable. It's less of a reward and more the result of your experience matching your predictions. No errors were detected in that outcome and so you likely would maintain that behavior. However, if you had expected ice cream, and you learned upon arrival that the airport had discontinued the service, you would experience a dip in dopamine thanks to the unexpected negative outcome. And as a result, you might not engage in that behavior again. And this is how dopamine, and by extension, surprise, encourages us to update our behaviors. If the outcome is as predicted, we continue as before. If it isn't, we are biologically driven to eliminate the surprise happening again by making that scenario predictable in the future. If successful, positive surprises change our beliefs, attitudes, and values in a way that leads to behaviors that seek out that positive pattern again. If stable, if not surprising, we maintain the old behavior from before and if negatively surprised, we engage in behaviors that avoid that pattern happening again. According to the neuroscientist Humphreys, this is why when talking about dopamine, we should probably replace the word reward with the word outcome. Dopamine is not a reward system. It is, as he puts it, a prediction error system. Which, I'm not going to step on this. I want you to explain it. But the, the spike is when you go, uh, you know, that's when you're... Uh, you know, you 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 open the door to your house, and on the inside of it is a is there's a there's a circus performance taking place that you didn't order. Like like this is not this is a far different situation than than your model suggests should be taking place right now. It's it's a it's a you are surprised because you are in essence wrong and wrong in that what you expected to happen ain't what's happening. Am I am I in the same right place here? You're absolutely in the okay. right place. Go from there. So- so, so phasic, uh, so, so and uh, the evolutionary uh, reservoir. What we're left with is uh, when you get surprised, learn instantly because that uh, learning instantly favored our ancestors, and so that you know that's what we're left with. Of course, and not all surprises now are imminent danger or immense opportunity. Uh, there's no tigers and things like that that are uh are woolly mammoths coming around the corner let's get that one it'll feed us for the winter so what happens is um the spike in surprise the phase one it says stop what you're doing pay close attention is this an uh, is this an opportunity or is this danger now this is crazy because surprise is the only emotion that requires an interpretation, right? <laughs> yeah, that requires so, one, yes. <laughs> right. So, and because it requires a, 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 an interpretation, is this a good thing, bad thing? You get this spike of dopamine which says, stop whatever you're doing, pay close attention, learn instantly. So that's the spike says stop, and it just screams alert, alert, alert. Phase two is slow dopamine 
So phase one is spike, stop what you're doing. And from a dopamine, uh, from a neuroplasticity point of view, it just screams through your brain, okay, all the avenues, wake up here. We're going to form a new belief. Get ready. So that's <laughs> that's how what a spike of dopamine does. It just boosts neuroplasticity through the roof. It's like it's on steroids now. Mm-hmm. And then it, that only lasts a few milliseconds. So the second part, phase two of phasic dopamine is, okay, quickly figure out what's going on, make a belief. And then now you have this new belief and move forward. After the break, Michael Roussel, the author of The Power of Surprise, will share how we can use this understanding of how surprise leads to learning and how learning depends on interpretation to focus on the interpretation as something that we can use to improve our lives and the lives of others. All of that after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 
37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. When you're talking about surprise, like in this book, what are you talking about? That's a great question. Uh, I do want to say that uh, as I launch into my answer, that uh, the reason I'm able to explain things so well, or uh, thank you, is that I listen to shows, uh, your show in particular, <laughs> and you, because uh, you explain things so well and your guests explain things so well. And I take these little tidbits and they drive my thinking and they form my thinking. And from that, I can launch into and, uh, and borrow other great minds, just like you do. I, I'm so excited about reading your book because you have such exciting guests and, uh, and, and you have such great ideas. So that when you explain things, I learn so much, and it's going to help me explain things. So now let me launch into my answer. Okay, cool. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I was always fascinated with hypnosis, and as a young man, it, with my fascination with hypnosis, uh, you know, this was back prior to the days when they had the internet. So I would read all these books and everything I could on hypnosis, and I thought, well. I'm a doer. I'm going to try and hypnotize everybody. Like an insurance salesman, your audience is your friends and your family. That's who you're going to sell to first. So I hypnotized everybody I could, friends and family. And you know, they would always ask me, what if you hypnotize somebody and uh, they, they didn't know it? Well, what if you hypnotize somebody and it lasted forever? <laughs> well, these are great questions. And I thought, I wonder what the answers to those are. So um, now, that was back in the 80s. So I thought, I'm going to do a PhD with those questions in mind. So I uh, went to the University of Oregon and I studied those kinds of questions. What I was mostly interested in, um, when, when, when you hypnotize somebody and tell, you, tell them they're cold, they'll start to shiver. You tell them that they can sing and all of a sudden, all the restrictions that they held upon themselves of, oh, I'm not a very good singer. I can't carry a tune. Those restrictions are lifted. And their mindset is, I can sing. And so um, all of a sudden, they were a better singer. They surprised themselves. They surprised others. I wanted to know, what is the natural mechanism that hypnosis connects into and uh, about making people's beliefs different? And is there a way to get in there as a psychologist and a counselor to use that mechanism without going through the drudgery of uh, hypnotic induction? And I learned that, well, so what I did is I studied all the, uh, I collected stories, I read Chicken Soup for the Stole. I uh, collected stories from my students as a professor and as a teacher 
about moments that changed you, that where you felt different about yourself. And I looked at those from a hypnosis point of view. What was present when those things happened? Mm. And I called those formative events, when uh, moments where uh, all of a sudden you changed. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, Lori used to think she was ungraceful and odd looking until one day she overheard her aunt's friend say, hmm, Aunt Lori, she's exotic looking. Mm. Boom. Now, th there's a moment. And she said ever since that time, she felt like she was exotic looking. So when you have a, when you feel odd and ungraceful, of course, you look at the world and people look at you and you think, oh, they're, they're looking at me with an aversion. But if you think you're exotic looking, those same casual glances cast your way. Well, now they feel like, oh, uh, they really like me. So you change a belief, you change a mindset, and, you know, and of course that perpetuates itself. So I really wanted to know what's going on here. And so I studied these and I wrote my first book, Sudden uh, Impact, how moments of, how spontaneous moments change our lives. Hmm. And I'm looking at all these stories. And then one day I had my little epiphany. You know, what's really common with all these stories? They were moments of surprise. And so now I spent the last five years studying surprise and how surprise works. What's the neurological mechanisms there? What's the cognitive mechanisms? And why do we even have surprise? Mm -hmm. Is it really emotion? And those are the kinds of things that drove me to where I am now. So I love that, but I'm dropping in to tell another story from the book. This comes from Michael's book. This is chapter five of The Power of Surprise. And it starts out with the story about a five-year-old named Carol. I'm telling you the story because I really want this idea to be foundational to the rest of the conversation. And I just feel like it's a really perfect example for me, more so than the example that just came out in the conversation. So here's the example. Uh, this is a story that he collected as an example of the surprise that he's trying to get us to use to create better personal narratives in our own lives. There's a five-year-old. Her name is Carol. She's enjoying a horseback ride with her family, and there's a trail guide there. They're in the hills of Wisconsin, and at the top of a knoll with the stables in view, her mother drops her scarf. The guide turns around to get it. That causes Carol's horse to bolt, and now there's a five-year-old at a full gallop running down these hills, and she remembers it being this terrifying thing. You're galloping at lightning speed. You're five years old. You're on the back of this horse. She's pulling the reins as hard as she can, can't get it to stop. And then eventually, though, as they get close to the stables, people come up and they slowly slow down the horse. And one of these people says, even though she's terrified and embarrassed, says, wow, you sure are some horsewoman. You're a real cowgirl. And that, she credits, as being the incepting moment of her love for horses all the way to this day. And now she's a great horseback rider and prefers horses that have a little bit of an edge, she says. But she could imagine if she had arrived at the stables and instead had been told something negative, that this was an example of how poor she was and what she was doing and how she shouldn't be doing it and she should be embarrassed, that would have led to a different narrative as an explanation of what she was experiencing following the surprise. And that would have led to a different set of beliefs, internal beliefs about herself and maybe a different life path. Okay, back to the conversation. What is a belief? Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> well, my book's all about beliefs because you can't be surprised if you don't have a belief. So, um, yes, uh, I thought, you know, so I studied beliefs, and you, you know, as you do when you're right, you look at everybody's understanding of beliefs and you think we all have beliefs. It's so common. Why can't someone come up with a definition uh, that we all like? And um, <clears throat> so I looked at everybody's and I thought, you know, I, I'm going to go with it. I'll just throw it out there because uh, as soon as you have a definition, it's subject to attack. And I thought, well, I'll defend this as a best I can. So my idea of a belief is it's a mental representation of the patterns our brain uses to understand the world. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I really need to differentiate that from a mindset, because if you think of a belief as this uh, mental representation of these patterns, a mindset is the inclination to act about this. So it's it's an inclination to to understand, to see, to smell, to view, Mm -hmm. to interpret the world according to this underlying belief. And so once you have an underlying belief, you move forward in the world that drives your expectations, your predictions, your understanding, how you interpret, which is confirmation bias. You, you do all that according to your mindset, which is the active component of your belief. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like this. Don't get me wrong. It's very difficult. Uh, I've had neuroscientists tell me there is no definition because beliefs aren't even a thing. I'm like, okay, uh, you know, like it's a process. It's not an object. It's not a possession. I'm like, okay. So the, it's fine. We've been talking about it for 2000 years and there are many different opinions on what a belief actually is. But what we can say, I think, is we can get into talking about this from the, from the part of um, subjective versus objective reality. So because the brain generates a model by, and that model helps us navigate whatever is happening out there beyond that are, whatever's happening that our senses are picking up on. Not, we're not picking up on all of it because uh, a a mantis shrimp sees some things that we don't. Uh, A bat has a different subjective reality than we have different sensory modalities, different internal realities, but we've got one too. And a lot of what you talk about in the book is how, this um, this model that we're generating helps us predict and helps us infer and helps us create expectations. If you could talk about that for a minute, uh, oh, there. <laughs> talk about that for for yeah, wax poetic on it. For uh, let's pretend that someone's never heard this before and they're like, "What do you mean it's a, it's used for prediction and expectation?" Like, uh, I, yeah, I get that. What are you what are you driving at? You know what I mean? There's a. Um, what I'm thinking about here is you gave a great example in your TED talk about um, if I was driving down the road and I saw a car uh, hover off of the road, change lanes, and then land, um, it something happens in the brain at, during that moment that is um, different from if someone says, you know what, I know you say you're uh, um, you're a terrible public speaker, but I like, the, I like how meticulous you are when you're putting together a lecture. It makes your lectures better than someone who thinks they're really good. These both seem like, uh, my expectations and my understanding of the world are being challenged, but it's a different thing that's happening inside of me ver- in, in these two different scenarios. So if we could talk about that some. Okay. <clears throat> well, let me give you, uh, let me give you my answer for that really great question. <laughs> and as I move forward and uh, you can nod or uh, shake your head if I'm not going in the direction that you think I should be going. Um, th- there are so many different kinds of surprises. And uh, w- once you have a belief, <clears throat> your belief drives your mindset and uh, which also drives your predictions and your expectations. For instance, if, if you were blindfolded and you were in a room and I said, well, you have to now leave and you felt your way around to the, the, to the door, you would automatically reach for the door handle at 39 inches from the ground because that's the standard place for door handles. And you'd reach for a handle and expect to turn it or, or move it up or down. That's because your beliefs drive uh, that expectation and that prediction. And if you believe that uh, sidewalks are safe to walk on, you're going to walk there safely until you see a car come screaming down the sidewalk. That would surprise you because your belief that sidewalks are safe isn't uh, need, needs updating. Mm-hmm, <clears throat> So there's different kinds of beliefs. Now, uh, <clears throat> if you're walking along the sidewalk and you see $100 bills, you'll be surprised and you'll pick it up. But you've already got a ready-made belief system in there that says you'd be surprised when you pick it up. But your ready-made belief system is, oh, somebody probably dropped it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so while you were surprised to see it, you already have a ready-made explanation for that. So it's it, those aren't the kinds of surprises I'm talking about. Um, let me just give you a few more examples of surprises because yeah. the, the surprises I talk about are very different, uh, but we need to talk about the, the general assumption of what surprise is because when I ask people about surprises, 
they don't tend to talk about surprises that happened to themselves. They tend to talk about surprises that they witnessed. For instance, if you're in traffic and you see the car in front of you, it's stuck in traffic and it starts to hover and take off, you're going to be surprised. And, uh, and that's going to change your belief about hover cars and cars in general. But it didn't change you. You know, you are still the same person. If you see a panda running across your lawn when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be surprised because you don't expect pandas to be running across your lawn. So uh, in that case, uh, you're going to go outside and you're going to check. You're going to check to see what just happened. Is that, uh, is that a friend uh, doing a prank? Was there really a panda out there? Can I see tracks of a panda? Can I see any evidence of a panda? And that, that's going to stay with you all day. <laughs> you're going to want some resolution yeah, that surprise. <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know what the heck happened. Right. So, uh, and then you're going to go to work or you're going to go talk to somebody. You say, hey, did you see a panda? I saw a panda. You know, you, you just got to figure this out. And in the process of figuring this out, your mind is occupied trying to make meaning of that surprise. And then you find out later that uh, there was a news report. Yes, there was a zoo break. And there, there was a, an anaconda and a gorilla and a panda. And you're thinking, well, thank God I saw the panda. I wouldn't want to see the gorilla the anaconda. So now you've had some resolution and explains your surprise. <clears throat> now, let me give you an example of the surprises that I study that I find fascinating. They're very similar. Um, now, I, I want you to think of, and this is a story that I got from Lori. Uh, when I ask students to give me stories about surprises, they, they talk about... Uh, you know, picking that up that $100 bill and a story like a panda. So I asked students, give me a story about a formative event, event that changed how you felt about yourself or what you learned about yourself. And then they tell me a story that's typically got a surprise in it. And let me give you an example. Now, Lori, um, she used to think that she was uh, not very smart because she was so slow at test taking. So she's taken her test. Now, this is uh, she's recalling a time when she was 13. So she's taken a test in the library and she's very nervous and she's going slowly. She thinks she's not very smart and everybody else is getting up and leaving all those brainiacs. Right. They're all getting up and leaving and she's getting nervous and feeling bad about going so slowly. A librarian walks by and the librarian says, hey, your attentive deliberation shows a lot of grit. Keep it up, kid. <laughs> Boom. Now that that comment surprised her. And she said, and she tells me in her story, she says, ever since that moment, I take my time. I, I, do, I do it and I do it gladly. Mm -hmm. And I'm really comfortable with it now because I'm gritty. And gritty is the signs of a strong learner. So ever since then, everything's better. And so she, you know, so um, slow test test taking isn't a sign of intelligence. Slow test taking is a sign of grit mm -hmm. and attention. Boom! I love All this so much. I love that you're uh, you're in your in the book. You talk about how to how to talk to people in this way, and uh, are this place in pop psychology we look at as being negative uh, confirmation bias, as an example, like the, I, uh, I the our availability heuristic and things like that where you the lens i'm uh, i am this is novel information that i am going to interpret through a lens of confirmation and i'm going to use some sort of basis to do that and if the basis of that is some sort of negative attitude i hold about myself or some sort of personal narrative that frames me as a, kind of a certain kind of person then anything ambiguous is going to be interpreted as confirmation of those things because i can disambiguate it in that direction but you're talking about giving somebody a way of disambiguating no, uh, ambiguous novel information uh, in a way that they haven't considered before. And the, the really clever part of this is that you talk about these types of beliefs we have about ourselves, if they do change through conversation or something like that, um, they may change without our conscious awareness and we may never, uh, we may enter into a, a, a personal narrative where we don't remember ha ever having felt differently. Uh, I find that absolutely phenomenal. 
Uh, if you could talk about that just for a moment about how beliefs can change without us noticing, and then also we get will retroactively ret, we will retcon our personal narratives so that that's how we've always seen the world. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> well, you know, because you study persuasion and beliefs that uh, and branding, you know, all these things take place unconsciously. We don't think we're affected. <clears throat> For instance, there was a study done out of Stanford, and they did the. Uh, they they had these classes and they were classes in criminology and uh, they they taught one class uh, and class was uh, uh, crime is a crime is a virus and you know come up with solutions and and then they taught the exact same lesson to another one and said uh, crime is a beast come up with solutions and the crime with the virus came up with the uh, group. They came up with all these systemic uh, uh, ways to attack crime, right? The crime as a beast group, they came up with this uh, hard form of discipline and and policing and deterrence. And so you can see the results were um, driven by the question. Mm -hmm. And, and then, but here's the interesting part, you know, because the interesting part of, the, of experiments is often what's not intended. And, and so what they found is that uh, uh, when, when they told the groups, well, you know, your, your answers were driven by the question. They all denied it. Mm-hmm. They said, no, 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 no. These are the real answers. These are the, this is how you attack uh-huh. a crime. And so they, they refused to believe that they were influenced when clearly they were. <clears throat> So, so um, we don't know what influences us, generally speaking, unless uh, someone, you know, like a used car salesman is hitting us over the head with clearly, um, you know, a, a, a self-interest in uh, saying, oh, you look like a guy or a gal who really <laughs> knows what they're looking for in a car. So let me show you what you're looking for. So that kind of uh, obvious influence uh, we avoid like the plague. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, Jonah Berger calls that reactance, this automatic. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think we have to hide the evidence because if you have conflicting beliefs, and we all do, um, w- um, if you have conflicting beliefs, then you don't know what's driving you. You, you, you can't have coherent thoughts with all mm-hmm. these conflicting beliefs. So uh, part of changing a belief to make it efficient, to make it work properly, is to disqualify or absolutely get rid of the prior belief. Mm-hmm. And that, that happens through neuroplasticity. And here's where dopamine gets involved. But what happens, beliefs are most effective when they're clear. And so when you change a belief, it's best to move forward with that belief from a, just purely a functional point of view. And our, and our, our brains are pretty functional. Mm-hmm. And just think, if you had conflicting beliefs all the time, you'd never get anything done. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're going to move forward on anything, you have to have a consistent belief. And so if your brain allows you to look at all these prior beliefs without them being just you know, like a prior narrative, then uh, you, you can't really get productive or do anything, move forward. So from purely a functional point of view, it makes sense. Now, there's the neurological and cognitive uh, aspects of that, too. But from a purely functional point of view, this is what happens with beliefs. You talk about these studies in which people are, um, they are given very clear, clearly, obviously not true things, and then they are uh, measured in an fMRI. And uh, the you talk about there's a difference between the ease of processing when we believe something and the difficulty in processing when we have to actively become skeptical or actively disbelieve. Like there seems to be something different. You, you, you open it in the book as like, is disbelief just the inverse of belief? And you talk about them as separate um, concepts. And I'd like to hear a little bit about what makes them separate concepts. Sure. Well, you know, you're, you're making reference to some of Sam Harris's work. And uh, he, he, he did, he was a primary worker in that, in that field. And he found that belief was pretty much just accepted that there was very little uh, activity going on in the brain with fMRI. And uh, I know your work on assimilation and accommodations probably um, 
it probably shows that in a similar way as your your a belief is simply assimilated in the brain. It just kind of sifts into there. Disbelief, which fascinated me, was actually uh, in the same parts of the brain as the um, as disgust and over. <laughs> yeah. In the olfactory. Uh, and so you can see when you say something, uh, you know, especially in today's political environment, say something that somebody doesn't believe, uh, in, in, particularly in uh, the political spectrum, that you get a face like, oh. <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and I quipped in the book that that, that, that might be the, where you get the idea that, or the, the saying that, oh, that idea stinks. Yeah. You know, Right in that, in that part of the brain. <laughs> the thing about the, the surprises that I study, I, I like surprises about um, how it, a moment uh, um, challenges the belief you have about yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, the hover car or finding a $100 bill, uh, you're, gonna, you're going to be surprised, but it doesn't change who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. It makes for an interesting story, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at Lori, in, in, and she was this, she was the student in the library who thought that slow test taking was um, a sign of, of a lack of intelligence. Now, when she changed her belief, there was no pushback because uh, it, it was couched in such a way that it, it changed her belief. And it changed your belief about herself. So when when you look for your panda uh, to find out if the panda was indeed in your yard, you were able to validate that with the evening news. Now, when uh, when Lori was told, "Oh, uh, well, your slow test taking is attentive deliberation, which is a sign of grit," how does she validate that? You know, you can't listen to the evening news. Yes, uh, uh, slow <laughs> A young woman in a library tonight, this afternoon, because very attentive. We're going now with Tom, who's at the scene. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Hey, but so how how does your brain validate that? Well, it it does. Uh, uh, it does an internal Google search in mm. order for you to make sense out of something. Just like you listen to the evening news your brain has to make sense of something about you. So it does this internal Google search. It does this in many seconds. And the subject in the subject bar is, are you gritty? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, your brain, just like Google, coming up, can come up with millions of signs. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, you are gritty because it's couched that way, just like crime is a virus. Yes, I am gritty. Mm -hmm. So now it all makes sense. And so you accept this new belief because you have evidence. You've got pages and pages of this internal evidence that says, yes, I am gritty. And this person says gritty is a good sign. So now you have gritty and you are motivated because of what it did to your dopamine to move in the direction of grittiness and you're attracted and now it becomes part of your being and you can't ever remember it's changed it, you, and now if someone says to you hey so uh, when did you first notice you were gritty well it wasn't because of what the library said the librarian said you've always been gritty he just noticed it right so here's your belief change so without a recognition that your belief actually changed. So good. This is an incredible impact of, of, of this, these belief change blindness, belief revision blindness, consistency bias, all these things can, but the way you talk about it in the book is, is, is in a positive way. And that in, in, in this example that you're giving, like this person is, is, uh, um, retroactively retconning um, their, uh, I forget the, the technical term for it, but they're going, they're back propagating. That's what it is. They back propagate through their, um, their, uh, the associative architecture of their brain. And they now have a different frame, a different framing for the whole thing. And, but it also now goes forward because tomorrow, once this process is kind of matured, tomorrow they're going to be in a situation that uh, because they can see themselves as gritty now, or they may have seen themselves differently, it will affect their behavior. And that different behavior could also affect life outcomes. And now their whole life is, is blossoming and, and unfolding in a different way than it was before. 
just through this new construction, this new understanding and this belief change they may not be aware of. You know, this happens to all of us. It happens to us regularly. And, and because the really good ones like that one, they're so seamless. And, and so, um, yes, it happens to you. It happens to me. It happens to everybody. But I, I was able to collect some of these stories because sometimes they make a big impression. Mm-hmm. And I collected these stories. They only rise to consciousness sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's those ones that rise to consciousness that I've collected that helped me formulate this idea. Now I had to look at the neurological and cognitive evidence. What's going on? Because <laughs> I have so many stories. Now I have to explain it. Because if you can't explain it neurologically and you can't explain it well, cognitively, then what you have is a pop psych book, uh, you know, a self-help book. And, you know, without a scientific merit, for me, they lack, um, they lack stability. I, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I want to be part of a new movement of science literature, of science, uh, pop science books that don't, that aren't just Wikipedia articles with some jokes. I, I want them to be, I want them to be, I want them to have an actual, there's, uh, they, they improve the world. They, uh, they push, they push us in one, in one more direction or another. And your book definitely does this. And I really appreciate it. I feel like it's part of a new wave of pop science writing. I understand. I was part of that first wave where I was like, hey, did you ever hear of confirmation bias? Uh, <laughs> this is what it is. Um, here's some jokes to make it go down better. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, though, there is one experiment that I love, the SCAR experiment. I feel like this sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. If you could talk about it at any length you'd like, they told people they put a scar on their face and then they had them have conversations. If you could uh, explain it. And that was with Michael Kazanica. One of my favorite humans of all time. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And if there's anybody who popularized the way science should be understood and how, how to make it accessible, it was certainly Michael Kazanica. It's a great experiment um, and because it talks about confirmation bias, mm-hmm. which I think is a great tool and you can use it wisely in, in surprise. But with uh, Michael Kazanica's experiment, experiment as, you, as you noted, he, he would get these uh, subjects and say, we want to find out how people respond to somebody with a scar. So we're gonna put a scar on your face. So they put this big grotesque scar on, 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 this, on the subject's face and they show them show in the mirror. Here, see, see the scars and this grotesque and everything. Okay, now they um, say in a moment, we're gonna have you interview somebody and just talk to them. And we want you to describe what kind of a reaction they have when they see the scar. And just before the experiment starts, they say, oh, we just need to do a touch-up on your scar. And they take the scar completely off, but the subject doesn't know that. And then they position a camera behind that subject's shoulder, and then they conduct the interview. And as they conduct the interview, they, you know, they just have a little interview. They have this formulated questions that they run through and they listen to the person's answers. And then at the end of the interview, the experimenters asked the subject, so what did you think? What were the responses to the, um, to the person looking at your scar? No, they don't know the scar's gone. Mm-hmm. And so they said, well, these people, they were rude and, and they were a little indignant. And, uh, but, you know, they, they would look away in disgust and it just, you know, it, 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 it was very, uh, it was very saddening to see people respond to scars that way. And, uh, and this would happen over and over again. And then they would show, well, here, look, let's look at this video. Tell us when this happened. They still don't know that the scar has been taken. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at the video taken from over their shoulders so mm-hmm. they can't see our scars gone and as they're looking at the uh, looking at the video and of course they did ask this person a question so uh what's your favorite s- subject that you're studying currently and the person would look away and think just as we all do we look away we think we ro- we look up we look to the side we look down and they'd say see there it is there it is See the way that person's looking away they can't stand to look at the scar they're disgusted and I'm disgusted with that person <laughs> and then they show them by the way, your scar is gone. But this happened with so many subjects because when you have a story, when you have a belief, when you have an idea in your mind, a mindset, you see evidence to support it, whether it's true or not. And That's of course, so you good. know, 
talk about that with the, your confirmation bias. It's so how- good. I mean, the information that could be interpreted in any way becomes transformed into it's interpreted in one way. And uh, if you and there's so many lessons to be de- derived from this experiment, and you put it in a perfect place in the book to do that uh, because. Uh, I mean, I can imagine this feels a lot like what you go through when you, t- when you learn about CBT and, and helping people like, you know, reinterpret, uh, ambiguous informations. They, they're in the grocery store and somebody that they know doesn't speak to them. And so the interpretation is they don't, they didn't speak to me because they, they don't like me because they never liked me. And, 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 but you know, have you considered maybe they didn't see you? Uh, maybe they were very busy. Maybe they thought you were somebody else. Um, that's uh, the scar experiment is such a uh, a clear and and very well told example of seeing what we expect to see. Uh, even though the scar was just applied to the face, it's not like this person's had this scar their entire lives. And there, there's a vast amount of assimilation taking place where they're like, "This is uh, this is now the model. This is how I understand the situation." This person is looking away because they don't like the scar. I just want to just travel back just a moment to your comment about CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's this long, intense therapy of changing a person's belief and challenging. So, so it's a mechanism. You challenge the belief, challenge the belief, so you, you can change it. And so when you change a belief, then uh, it changes your mindset and then it self perpetuates. And that's the whole point of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, what if you could do it in a comment? And that's what happened to Lori. Now, let's just travel back to a moment with uh, Lori. And uh, Lori's in the library. That's mm-hmm. the student who thought she, she had slow test-taking skills, and that was a sign of a low intelligence. She changed her belief in a moment. That belief drew, drove a new mindset and she saw evidence of her new mindset everywhere because of confirmation bias, just like the person who had the scar on the cheek. Mm-hmm. They expect to see something, they see something. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that cognitive behavioral therapy should be eliminated unless you <laughs> I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I use cognitive behavioral therapy as a psychologist, and I use it on myself because I know how I can't surprise myself. There's an oxymoron. So I use cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's a very valuable tool. Uh, Martin Seligman says it's the most valuable of all the therapeutic tools. And uh, so I I do believe in that. I'm doing the comparison because it's a valid comparison of how, in a moment, surprised unstrategically, actually drives the same effect of what could take place maybe in months of cognitive behavioral therapy. So uh, let's see how this plays out with Lori in the library. Okay. I like What's this. What's going on is uh, I think that uh, slow test taking is a sign of low intelligence. So back in the library now, she believes going slowly is a sign of low intelligence. Her dopamine is low. She's anxious. She's not enjoying herself. She's going slow. Dopamine says, why are you doing this? It's bad to go slowly. It's a sign of intelligence. So her motivation is low. She wants to get the hell out of there. But her motivation, uh, her tonic dopamine is low now, uh, low for going slowly. Now, the librarian says, your attentive deliberation shows signs of grit keep it up girl okay so there's a spike it says what just happened what's going on here learn that's the spike neuroplasticity learn instantly phase two which is the long active dopamine phase two says hmm grit is a good thing attentive deliberation is a good thing your dopamine level moves up slightly and now you're motivated to go slowly rather than motivated than the prior experience of uh, you, you were afraid and felt anxious about going slowly. In one moment, your dopamine level goes from lower to slightly higher. And now that you've got this new belief, 
it perpetuates itself and you see your grittiness everywhere. You go home, you make cookies, but you make them with grit. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you one th- one last thing, and then I'll I'll, I'll let us uh, in this the CERS model, the cause effect resource statements. Uh, I know we've been talking about it in all sorts of different ways, but you present this in the book as a as a as a model, as an idea, as a construct, and I would love to hear what you have to say about it before we head head out. Okay, uh, you know, um, there's so many little nuances about how to deliver a persuasive statement. You know, so uh, you know, I listened to your store, um, your show on an elaboration likelihood model, hmm. and uh, so then I had to go study it. And um, I listened to is is a Burton about uh, the sense of conviction, uh, conviction oh, okay. feeling. You know, and so. Uh, and and so I thought, well, I got to check these things out. So I checked out persuasion and an elaboration likelihood model. And uh, Jonah Berger on his in Catalyst writes about reduce his acronym for reduce. So I tried to incorporate all of this. And of course, uh, a lot of this is my big history in hypnosis. How how to actually foment a comment in one sentence that changes a belief. So I have got all this history that I'm driving together, and. Um, what you want to do when uh, humans love links, a link is, is an association. So you, uh, if you want to deliver a comment in one sentence, you must link a cause and an effect, and that, and then uh, a cause, C and CERS, C-E-R-S, effect is the effect what it drives. And it's a resource statement. So there's the RE and the SIRS. <laughs> it, it's pretty, it's as simple as that. Now with, um, with the elaboration likelihood model, we're more likely to, to uh, change our minds if it, uh, if you have to think. And so, and so in the phasic dopamine model, phase one is quickly uh, learn, you know, that's the spike in neuroplasticity. Phase two is what are you gonna learn? And so you have to learn something. So when you uh, deliver a cause effect resource statement, it goes like this. Um, if you think back to, let's use uh, Laurie in the library again, and if the librarian says something like, um, your ability to do the test slowly makes you gritty. So you, uh, so, and that's cause effect resource statement. Now it's not the one that he used. Uh, every once in a while we say something, it's brilliant and surprises somebody and it changes how they believe and what they think. But I've incorporated all the persuasive information on all the literature into us that drives the simple comment, your ability to go slowly is a sign of grit. So your ability to go slowly is the cause, as the C in the SIRS, shows signs of grit, which is a good thing, and that's the effect. That explains, that causes her surprise, and it also explains her surprise. So it's got the ready-made answer to the surprise, the phase two, what the hell am I supposed to believe? Mm-hmm. So a, con- a, a, a cause-effect resource statement done well, it triggers a surprise, answers the surprise, and then you, uh, if it's done seamlessly, you have a new belief. Now, not all cause effect resource statements create beliefs, but when they do, but, but if you look back at all belief changes, they were typically cause effect resource statements or some form of surprise. Who do you think should get this book uh, and why, and what do you hope people get from it once they get it? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Who should get this book? Uh, if you work with people and you think that you have an opportunity to enrich their lives by by uncovering things that they don't know about themselves that make them uh, 
healthier, happier, more resourceful. This book is for you. And that, that's parents, that's coaches, and that's teachers. Uh, if you're a counselor, there's tools in here that I've used in all those aspects of my life, and I do it regularly. And so the book is for the regular guy, the regular woman, um, anybody who works with people and you want to enrich their lives. It's just another tool. And if somebody, when somebody finishes this book and puts it down, what do you hope they get out of it? What is the thing you're like, uh, I really hope that this is what this does to this person. Cause that was my intention. Uh, so, so some of the, some of the, my favorite moments in my entire life is when I say something to somebody and I see them flourish because of a comment I gave them. And I think I was a cog in that wheel of happiness, resourcefulness. And so anytime you get to do that as a parent, coach, teacher, psychologist, professor, any of those roles, uh, I feel enriched. And that's uh, my dopamine driving me. (laughs) Well, I want you to know, you did that for me in this conversation and back at you because uh, I really love this book. I will recommend this all over the place. And uh, don't stop. Please write another one. And once you have figured out how to write a book in this way, it's so much easier to do it in the future. And so please get obsessed with something else and tell us all about it. I look forward to your voice in this pantheon of, of new psychology writing. And I love it. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for uh, allowing me on the show. I feel like this is a show of giants, and now I, I'm feeling a little impressed with myself that I got on the show. <laughs> well, I read the book. I was like, ah, oh, like somebody, whoever pitched it to me first. I don't know if it that is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support this show, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free. With the higher mounds, you'll get posters and t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. To really, really support the show, just tell everybody you know about it and get on social media and share episodes that meant something to you. It means a lot. I thank you for doing it. Check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode. Nani? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.